Janeiro, nigga. <laughs> Cape Town, South Africa. I never make songs to disrespect women Or to judge people about the way that they living But the way I am is based on the life I was given Like them white boys losing my religion I used to be a Christian and a political pawn The Bible is right and all your native culture is wrong Next thing you know you telling me about making a song Come in the studio and tell me that I'm making it wrong Pissed off cause reality is making it strong Like the ghost of Timothy McVeigh making a bomb And hey, yo Marvin Gaye what the fuck is going on? These rap niggas made propaganda out of your song But it's the gong show, amateur night at the Apollo My dick is like my music but harder to swallow So children follow me like the Pied Piper And sing the chorus in the air with your blood in your lighter Sing that shit nigga, right now you played yourself thinking you down with me I end your life nigga, don't fuck around with me And if you kids can't listen then you bound to see The way you get shot for crossing a boundary You played yourself thinking that you down with me I end your life nigga, don't fuck around with me And if you kids can't listen then you bound to see The way you get shot for crossing a boundary Second verse is worse than the first in this respect Scripted specifically to keep people in check Harlem to Boston, real niggas spit with me But land speed, you ain't fucking shit to me And underground labels know that I don't trust you You only independent till you major, so fuck you And if you're pissed off cause you think that I dissed you I'll rape your mom so we can make this a personal issue Dance with the devil, remember that you're not on my level Stupid, you're not ready nope. I wouldn't decipher, bragging rights and rock steady and practice Every battle that they got in New York, and I still murder rappers on the streets. Okay, Mortal Technique there, crossing the boundary, and he did cross several boundaries. I just had to stop it. The Homesick Blues. Get dressed, get blessed, tie a piece 
put you on the day shift Look out, kid, they keep it all hit Better jump down the manhole Like yourself a pendle Don't wear sandals and try to forge the scandals Don't wanna be a bum You better chew gum The pump don't work Cause the vandals took the handle Okay, Dylan and the Homesick Blues started out with La Bamba with uh, the redoubtable Leela Downs. And then we went to Immortal Technique, Crossing the Boundary, a song I hadn't listened to for a while. And I know his allusion to rape uh, is figurative and is meant to be an insult, a poetic insult to his... Uh, enemy or the, the person he's defiant but uh, when he got to the part about I'll rape your mother just to show you I'm sorry I turned it off so I apologize to him for beginning the song and um, then turning it off it's just not something I can countenance right now even in that figurative sense Okay, then we had Dylan with the Homesick Blues. Used to be the theme song of this show. Times have changed. We play a lot of music now. Much more diversity in, in our music than it used to be. What have we got for you today? Well, we got the Radiation Girls. Short documentary about women who uh, early on painted radium on on diet on uh, watch faces the hands of watches they use radium so you could see the watch in the dark what price that was to them then we got Miriam Mikiba and her hit Miriam Mikiba her hit Pata Pata a little bit about her. We got Gisela Padilla, singer from new singer from San Isidro, California. We've got Brecht and Vile. We got Begeg Palace. We got Wage Debt. We got When We Can Review and Radio Labor. How are teachers unions getting ready for the axe to fall? When is labor not, when is work not labor? When is labor not work? At the University of Chicago, some workers were told that your work is not labor. When did the gap begin between wages and productivity that leaves huge profits in the hands of corporations and the rich and basically stops us right where we are or, or in relation, our actual wages and compensation are falling striking miners in Idaho and a lot lot more as always this is the labor and love show and let's play we promised some Brecht and Viable so let's play some the way to the next whiskey bar Why? Oh, we must find the 
next whiskey bar Or if we don't find the next whiskey bar I tell you we must die I tell you we must die I tell you, I tell you
Underground Railroad also ran south, which led black folks to freedom with Mexico right there to receive them. Mexican men with Pancho Villa and Zapata fighting for Tierra, Libertad y Techo with Adelitas on the front line with bullets across their pecho. In the year 1946, it was the Mendez family that fought against segregation in schools. Because before that, they treated us like fools, pushing us out into gangs, wars, and drugs. And then they get pissed off at us when we become Crips and Bloods, Traviesos, Zutsuras, Pachucos, Fulcloristas, Punks, Bomberas, Haraneras in the heat, Haraneras with the bomb as beat. Talking about what's really going on in the streets. In the 60s, in the streets of Oakland, California, Black Panthers organized for answers. Young lords in New York fought against wars. The Stonewall Rebellion remained true for the rights of the LGBTQ. AIM, who was down for native rights with no shame in their game. Brown Berets in LA learning how to fight and doing what's right. In the Campos of California, Filipinos were the first ones to lay down the boycott. Screaming in solidarity, Isang Baksak, one rise, one fall. You come for one, you come for all. And today, Arizona and Alabama, they don't play. Carving out racist laws like it's made out of clay. I stand with Emmett, Trayvon, Oscar, and Bell. With my mentor, Mumia, up in the cell. Telling you I'd rather be blind than to stay quiet on a day where my people are hunt down like prey. My ability to breathe is directly connected to my ability to see. It's not about me, never was, never will be. It's about we. It's time to move, y'all. My people. It's movement time. Okay, we had... Uh Brechton Vile, as I promised, the Alabama Moon, of course, um, a widely popular version was made by The Doors in one of their first albums, Alabama Moon. And then we had Las Cafeteras laying it down, telling it how it is, a group that got together, I believe, at Cal State Northridge. Some of them were not uh, musicians to begin with. And they worked together and trained themselves. They were like a cultural group. And now they are. They're an accomplished band. They travel around and they, uh, they book places well known. Here's something by a rapper named CNG called Not My President. Of just how divided our country remains, as you saw earlier in our poll numbers. And ABC's Jim Avila has more on the election fallout. Good morning, Jim. Good morning, Paula. This morning, more evidence. That Sorry, that's not what we want at all. Um. Not everyone is ready to accept CNG. the results of election 2016. Not my president. Yeah. Uh. 
you can call me comes and goes I'm that young individual knocking on your hoes Just left the crib, going to the swap 94 Civic, you can catch me on your block Talking to the cops, cause your ass got robbed The type of shit on this side will get your ass shot All the homies put me up on game, so I stayed with it Told me about the nines and the drugs, never played with it Everybody tripping in the streets, got a mug me Cause I'm a young Mexicano in the industry I give a damn about your blood, race, and color If you my main talk, the best believe you my brother uh, Real shit, when you stand right in front of me Vandalized, outlaw, say you fuck the industry was CNG, a rapper looks like from L.A., who talks about not my president. FDT, you hear it more and more. What it means. Let's listen to the news now, the labor news. We have two versions of the labor news. One is a national version from... Workers Independent News, and one is an international edition from Radio Labor. Here's the Workers International News. Well, let's see. Do we have it? Radio Labor. Let's go to Radio Labor. Here we go. Radio, radio. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, October 27th, 2017. I'm Mark Boulanger. This is a historic convention. It will be our entrance to a new vision of prosperity. Not a cookie-cutter American dream of white picket fences, but a dream shaped by each of us, a dream in which no one, no one gets left behind. 
That is Richard Trumka, the president of the largest labor federation in the United States, the AFL-CIO. He was speaking at the start of the federation's national convention held this week. The convention was held on the banks of the Mississippi River in St. Louis, Missouri, and during a time that the American labor movement faces some enormous challenges. Thirty years ago, the unionization rate in the United States was 20%. Now it's 10%. Wages have been effectively frozen for decades, and there is a rise in right-wing, anti-union, anti-women, anti-black forces in the country. It's time, Mr. Trump told the delegates, for working people to come together. We gather together as America and the world hunger for solidarity. We need it like we need air. We need it like we need each other. We need it like we need love. Yet fear, hatred, combined with a rigged economy and a political system stand in our way. We stand together as diverse as America in every way and united by our shared brotherhood and sisterhood in our labor movement. You see, that's our job at this convention, to represent our members while positioning our unions and our movement to grow, to give millions more the freedom to come together and bargain for good jobs and fairness. And at this convention in St. Louis, we'll chart the path toward a thriving movement. We're gonna talk about political independence, about voting rights, and right to work. We're gonna talk about launching a renaissance to rebuild our infrastructure and revive our manufacturing. We're gonna talk about diversity and inclusion. We're gonna talk about reforming our movement to ensure that it remains a force no matter what changes arise in our economy, from robots to new business models. We're going to talk about boosting the power of collective bargaining, growing our unions in the growth industries, and connecting with new workers who want to embrace a day when every worker, every single worker in America has the freedom to negotiate with his or her employer for a better life. Because we're the ones who wake America up every single morning. We tuck her to bed at night. We build the cars and planes and infrastructure. We lift the loads, we drive the buses. We ship the goods, we pour the molds. We connect our cities in our world. We teach, we heal, we make. We package, we print, and we bake. From the East Coast to the West Coast, North to South, and everywhere in between, we, the American worker, makes America strong. We don't duck. We don't run. We don't hide. We are the American labor movement, and we will not, we will not be denied. (laughs) 
The Global Union, which represents public sector workers, will be holding its International Congress in Geneva October 30th to November 3rd. Public Services International, the PSI, represents more than 20 million workers who are members of 700 unions in 154 countries. Its affiliated national unions include Unison and Unite in the UK. In the United States, large public sector unions such as AFSME and SEIU are affiliated to PSI. This will be the 30th PSI Congress since the union was founded 110 years ago in 1907. I talked to PSI's General Secretary, Rosa Pavanelli. I asked her to outline some of the major issues the Congress delegates will be addressing. The Congress will define the program of action of PSI for the next five years. For us, it's important to consolidate the work that we have been developing so far and we want to enhance in the next five years related to tax justice and to a fair system of trade. Uh, Tax justice is one of our priorities because we consider that without a fair tax system at global level, it won't be possible to eradicate poverty and it won't be possible to create the condition for reducing poverty and to re-establish more equality around the world. The second theme that is important for us is the fact that our fight against privatization of public services, and in particular this wave of public-private partnerships that are the real tool to open the door for privatization of public services is continuing around the world. Fighting against privatization of public services, not just protecting jobs and quality jobs in public services, but it's about ensuring the enjoyment of fundamental human rights for the population around the world. And of course, trade union rights is one of the main issues that we will continue to work on as trade unionists, but also because we are facing very serious challenges in so many places around the world. We want to evaluate the quality of the work that we have developed in the past five years, uh, but we also wanted to look at the global situation under an institutional point of view. It's now time to open a serious discussion on the reform of the global governance. It's no longer possible that a club of the global elite in the G20, in the G7 or even in the OECD is the only one dictating the agenda of all the countries around the world. This will never help to reduce the gap between developed and developing countries. At the same time, it's only through a global enhancing the participation of all the actors that we can contain the overwhelming powers of cooperation from one hand and from the other, we have the possibility to re-establish fair communities that can help to create a peaceful work. That is something that we very much need right now. Can you give us... This is Solidarity News on Radio Labour. 
This is a Radio Labor Report recorded on Thursday, October 19th, 2017. I'm Mark Belanche. One of the largest trading blocks in the world is managed by the trade deal between Canada, Mexico, and the United States. It's called the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA. Negotiations are now being conducted to renew or cancel the agreement. Meanwhile, the largest labor federation in the U.S., the AFL-CIO, is warning that the talks may end disastrously for workers. Celeste Drake is a trade policy specialist with the AFL-CIO. Let's start with transparency. Are the three countries, the U.S., Canada, and Mexico, negotiating openly so that we know the rules of the new NAFTA that will apply to us? No, they are not. They are still negotiating behind closed doors with secret texts. They're failing on that front. What about labor? Will the new NAFTA contain rules that ensure workers have the freedom to join together and negotiate for higher wages and better working conditions? The U.S. proposal is not targeted to protect workers, particularly workers in Mexico. The Canadian proposal is much better and would offer better protections to ensure workers have freedoms. Where will it end up? We just don't know. What about investment? Will the new NAFTA continue to give foreign corporations access to private tribunals where they can challenge our laws and our regulations? We just don't know. What about currency? Will the new NAFTA ensure that the three countries can't play games with their currency to gain a trade advantage over the other ones? We just don't know. Finally, what about content? Will the new NAFTA contain rules that ensure high North American content so that we can be confident that our workers will have more jobs and higher... Some examples of how the privatization of public services has caused harm or disrupted services to the public? There's been so many examples that we have been producing in the past five years, either talking about water or talking about health. Just to give you a figure that is not PSI invention, but is the OECD estimates. 150 million people are pushed below the threshold of poverty every year for the money that they have to pay for their health care in system where the health care services have been privatized. This is something that impacted directly the quality of life of people that is harming, really harming people around the world. The same I could say about the possibility to access drinkable water for millions of people around the world and our long-standing fight for public water and the human right to, to water. And that's it. International labor news you can use. Radio Labor will be reporting from Geneva throughout the PSI Congress. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. Thank you.
Workers Independent News Week in Review. I'm Doug Cunningham. The freedoms of working people are under attack, and these attacks are causing real pain for working families. It's an all-out assault by corporations, CEOs, and their politicians. It's a well-funded, coordinated attack. America's labor movement, its largest labor federation, is meeting in St. Louis at its quadrennial convention. AFL-CIO President Rich Trumka set the tone as he accepted election for another term. We build the cars and planes and infrastructure from the east coast to the west coast, north to south. We, the American worker, makes America strong. We don't duck. We don't run. We are the American labor movement, and we will not be denied. Call it Labor's Spirit of St. Louis. The solidarity of the AFL-CIO labor delegates gathered for their convention in St. Louis is up against one of the most challenging times in the history of the labor movement. Dan Duncan is executive secretary treasurer of the AFL-CIO's Maritime Trades Department. There's a heck of a fighting spirit on the convention floor and people are saying, okay, if we're going to fight, let's fight. Let's give it everything we've got. American Federation of Government Employees President David Cox says a fighting solidarity spirit is alive and growing in his union. AFGE is a fighting union. Our members are fighters. We are seeing our membership continuously grow. We're seeing the activism of our members get more concerned, more focused. People are engaging like they have never engaged before. Speaking at the AFL-CIO convention, United Mine Workers of America President Cecil Roberts cited the power and solidarity the labor movement still has to deliver results for its members and retirees. The miners' union waged a multi-year battle to save the pensions of coal mine retirees threatened by corporate maneuvers and bankruptcies. They succeeded in winning money both from the coal companies and from Congress. And we went to jail in the rain, and we went to jail in the snow, and we went to jail when the sun shined. Port truck drivers from Los Angeles, Long Beach, and New Jersey took their fight for justice on the job to Capitol Hill Thursday. The truckers are misclassified as contractors instead of employees, and they face wage theft and other exploitation. U.S. Representatives Napolitano and Nadler are introducing two bills, the Port Drivers Bill of Rights Act of 2017 and the Clean Ports Act of 2017, to end a system of forcing port truck drivers into illegal leases as contractors. The port truckers, like Daniel Seiko Uena, say that port truckers have their wages stolen, often have to wait long hours without being paid at the ports, and must take on all of the company's overhead burdens. Pay for the equipment, meaning the truck, the fuel, the lease, and it's on the backs of us drivers, and we need to change it. Workers Independent News, provided by Diversified Media Enterprises. I'm Doug Cunningham. So that was uh, the Win Labor Report. Both of them kind of featured Trunpa's speech, which is nice, very moving. I wish AFL-CIO had not 
signed to build the Dakota pipeline. That would have been good. But uh, we have to be unified, right? There are things we don't agree with. We're not all going to agree. We have to get along. We have to work together. We can handle our differences later. Okay, so what are teachers' unions doing about the coming attack on their rights? There's a case called Janus versus AFSCME, which, given the makeup of the Supreme Court, will probably strip unions of their right to collect what's called agency fees. In other words, I can't force you to to join my union, to join the union where we work. But uh, I am obligated to cover you, to represent you. Now, it costs money to represent you. It costs money to include you as part of the bargaining unit. So unions typically now charge a partial fee. Some of some of them are up to 90% of regular union wages. Some are less. The stipulation is that unions cannot spend that money on political campaigns because some members might not agree with the tenor of the campaign. The case now is a challenge to that. Let's see if we can read... Anyway, AFSCME. So what's happening now is unions in advance of losing that money. It's a substantial amount of money. Not only that, but now they have to represent someone who goes to court. Someone, say, who's abused by a boss. The union has to deal with that. Whether or not the person is a member. But the costs, it's not allowed to collect the costs of doing that. So it's, uh, I've labeled um, freedom to freeload. It's the freedom to freeload. Right to work equals right to freeload. So you look around and you look around you and you say, who's a freeloader? One is reminded of the story of the, we'll have to, Deal with that story later about the the hen who wants to make bread, but nobody wants to help. California's electrical IBEU Local 1245 is preparing 22,500 public sector members, including city and public utility workers, for Janus, as if they were joining the union for the first time. In a new drive, you're building leadership, said organizer Fred Ross. We are rebuilding and expanding leadership. The union has launched a card signing campaign aiming to re-sign 100% of current members. Rather than pile that job on top of stewards' existing duties, they're reaching out to other respected workers willing to work on union building. Check it out. It's on the Labor Notes uh, website.
working class history today? Let's read it. On this day in 1901, October 28, 1901, lifelong fighter for the working class, Emilienne Morin was born in Angers, France. A typist and daughter of a militant building worker, she was active in the anarchist movement from childhood until her death in 1991. She also became the lover of the legendary Spanish anarchist Benaventura Durruti and moved to Spain, playing an active role in the Spanish Civil War and giving birth to a daughter before returning to France. Emilienne Morin, we remember you. Okay, so this is the Labor and Love Show, and we've got some music. I want to talk about uh, an African singer, well-known African singer, and uh, I was coming up, Miriam Mikiba. Miriam Mikiba, who was also known as Madame Africa. Mama Africa was a South African singer. And uh, a, a hit of hers. She, she was born in Johannesburg, gave birth to a child in the age of 17, a brief and allegedly abusive first marriage, survived breast cancer, and began to sing professionally in the 19... 50s, with among others an all-woman group called Skylark. Miriam Mikiba, this is one of her big hits. It's called Pata Pata. After chemo might mean a trip back to the doctor's office just for a shot. Pardon me.
Okay, Miriam Mikiba. Looks like we lost her. Let's see if we can pick her up. There she is. Patapata. Customers with Liberty's roadside assistance don't get stranded. Wish I had Excuse me, I'm sorry. Sorry for the the uh, commercials. Okay. Ernie Mikiba singing "Pata Pata." Here's one from. Another one from Miriam Mickey, but the lion sleeps tonight.
Okay, Miriam Mikiba with her version. And that's her version of The Lion Sleeps Tonight. I'm looking for a song, a song here about Africa. Mama Africa. She was exiled for eight years from Africa. The legendary woman was born on March 4, 1932. Miriam Mikiba um, had a brief role in the anti-apartheid film Come Back Africa. And uh, which for which brought her international attention. She met Harry Belafonte in New York and who became her mentor and colleague. She moved to New York City, where she became immediately popular, recorded her first solo album in 1960. Her, return, her attempt to return to South Africa for her mother's funeral was prevented by the country's government. Her career flourished in the United States. She married Stokely Carmichael, a leader of the Black Panther Party, in 1968. As a result, she lost support among white Americans and faced hostility from the U.S. government. She and Carmichael moved to Guinea. She continued to perform in Africa. Her song Soweto Blues, written by her former husband, Huma Sekela, was about the Soweto uprising. Look for that. See if we can find it for you. Marianne McKeith. ...to join African jazz and variety, where film producer Lionel Rogerson discovered her. He asked her to perform two songs for his anti-apartheid documentary. At the time, she was unaware of the consequences that would arise from starring in the film. Makeba then traveled... 1992, she finally 
returned to South... 1990, she returned to South Africa. She continued recording and performing, including a 1991 album with Nina Simone and Dizzy Gillespie. From then on, she devoted her life to the anti-apartheid struggle. She said once that she did not perform political music but music about her personal life in South Africa, which included describing the pain she felt living under apartheid. People say, what I sing is politics, but what I sing is not politics, it is truth. Miriam McKeeba, let's listen to a little more of the documentary. Becoming the first African woman of color to win a Grammy. Meanwhile, the situation in South Africa worsened. It happened on Monday, March 21st, 1960. Several hundred natives gathered peaceably to protest the pass laws. Police mounted on tanks opened fire. 69 natives were killed. 176 It was then Makeba's mother decided to send Bongi, Makeba's daughter, to the U.S. On the teeming sandy beaches in the summer heat It was during this tragedy where she learned of her exile. She wanted to go home for her mother's funeral, but the South African consulate refused to allow her back in the country. They were punishing her for appearing in Come Back Africa. Matters became worse when Nelson Mandela, the leader of black resistance, was arrested and sentenced to life in prison. Miriam Makiba, our featured artist today, struggled against the apartheid system in South Africa. What does that have to do with labor, you want to ask? Hopefully, but hopefully not, but you want to ask, what does that have to do with labor? Well, systems like apartheid and the white segregation system in the United States, the Jim Crow system, and the system of in Palestine are examples of systems that are imposed in order to control labor. The imposing power wants nothing less, nothing more than the labor of the oppressed peoples. That's why the system is set up. So as an African, you could go and a black African, you could go and work at a white person's home, but you couldn't stay in the same area because they didn't care about you. The system didn't care about you as a person. They don't care whatever you do, whatever you want over there in your private life. It's all right. But when you come over here, you do my work and you just shut up and do it. And that's all. And of course, it was the same way in the rural South. We have examples of people trying to 
organize in the rural south in Arkansas black um, sharecroppers trying to organize and being murdered for it. 239 of them murdered for it. Trying to form a union. So, that's the same situation now in Israel. Palestinians are welcome to come and work in in Israeli controlled areas, but only as domestics and um, servants. Okay, so what's going on around the world here? Let's go and let's look at some of the stuff now on our Labor and Love website. By the way, it would really help if you could like us on Labor and Love Radio website. The University of Chicago grad students, after being told that their labor isn't work, get that now, their labor isn't work. Vote to form a union. Amazing, okay? This is uh, Working in These Times site. After months of legal battles, delays, and high-dollar opposition from their administration, University of California, Chicago graduate students will vote in a union election on October 17th and 18th. A win will make Graduate Students United, GSU, affiliated with the AFT, the official representation of U of Chicago's graduate students. The election is being conducted against the backdrop of an ongoing court battle over grad student unionization that represents a double-edged sword for the university. A victory would decertify the union and complicate grad student organizing at private institutions nationwide. But over the course of the case, the university has hardline anti-union statements both in and out of court may have helped the union's cause more than they hurt it. During the case, UC Chicago was forced, U Chicago, pardon me, not UC, was forced to argue that no grad student labor, including teaching entire courses, had a benefit to the university more important than the experience it provided grad students. Attorneys for the university from the international firm Proskauer Rose. Let's spell that. That's a, a the lawyers representing the capital P-R-O-S-K-A-U-R, capital R-O-S-T, Proskauer Rose, an employer favorite in labor cases, issued a standing objection to every use of the word work, salary, or compensation for grad students' services, including slips by their own witnesses. University officials have also opposed any use of labor and employee in the same context.
One graduate student tells in these times that graduate students were alienated by the university's argument that any benefit of grad labor was incidental. <sighs> and the footnote here is that the students voted to unionize. 1,103 to 479. So the union did win that one. But let's take note. Look at the lengths to which employers will go to deny your right to organize and work together with your colleagues. Labor and love. Item number two for your perusal. X marks the spot. This is a graph. You'll see it on the Labor and Love webpage, on the Labor and Love Facebook page. That shows that um, worker productivity and wages of workers rose pretty steadily from 1945 to about 1975. Pretty steadily they rose together. In other words, worker productivity was increasing and the profits that, that companies got because of that was shared. Workers were getting their, their part of that new productivity. In 1975, the worker productivity kept rising at a 45-degree angle, you know, straight, straight up and to the right. Whereas worker wages, all of a sudden, level out. Roughly speaking, in terms of what their wages will buy, Workers are about where they were in 1975. Whereas the index that measures productivity has risen from a little over 100 to 220, 230. So while worker productivity has gone up, wages have remained flat. Check it out. Labor and Love Radio. Striking miners remain resilient and strong. Recently, the Spokane, Washington Spokesman Review. After six months on strike... 250 miners at the Lucky Friday silver mine in Mullion, Idaho, remained in Mullion, Idaho, pardon me, remained determined to continue their fight for a fair contract that protects hard-won union pay, benefits, and safety measures. Strikers, members of Union Steelworkers, Local 5114 have carried out an effective corporate campaign aim putting their employer Hector Hecla Mining on the defensive. 
So. Well, let's see. Hecla owns mines in Mexico, Canada, and Alaska that mine silver, gold, lead, and zinc. The strikers' next action against corporate greed will take them to Hecla headquarters in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, where on October 31st they'll hold a solidarity rally. Coeur d'Alene has seen a vicious, vicious struggle against labor unions, the IWW, in the early part of the uh, 20th century. After more than a year of bargaining, the strike began in March when the company tried to implement the terms of its last, best, and final contract offer in February. In February. and rejected by the members by a vote of 244 to 2. The company wants to cut pay, increase miners' health care costs, eviscerate the seniority system, and make changes the miners feel will compromise safety. Okay, so be aware of that. That's on Portside. Striking miners remain resilient and strong. Look it up. And let's see what else Labor and Love has for us. I think that's it. Okay, I want to play some stuff now. Well, let's get on to the playlist and start talking about Nancy Marjone. I want to play now a song by a young woman of my acquaintance named Gisela Padilla. A songwriter who lives in San Isidro, California and is establishing her career. This one is called Standing on Top and it deals with the issue of abuse. When you left in the 
this blow When you said that you loved me Wasn't that unconditionally You told our friends and family Down on your knee That you were ready to marry me Standing on a hilltop Yeah, I'm standing on top I won't crumble I won't falter This is my Padilla was standing on top. Here's one of the first pop protest songs sung by the great Strange Fruit. You know, to me is my favorite. And 
I think strange fruit deals with things and deals with America, shall we say. Deals with my people and our oppression. I don't quite understand. Yeah, the same thing as you. I mean the same as you. You're right. It deals with America and the black and white problem, really. Southern trees. Barren, strange fruit. Blood on the leaves. And blood at the roots. Black bodies. black and white problem, really. The ugliness of it, that is about the ugliest song I have ever heard. Ugly in the sense that it is violent and tears at the guts of what white people have done to my people in this country. I mean, it really, really opens up the wound completely well when you think of a man hanging from a tree and to call him strange fruit. some guy there in uh, conversation with Nina Simone somehow every every show has a, a life of its own you know you come to the studio in the morning I always give myself a couple hours to prepare and 
today for almost no reason at all, except the obvious ones, we're concentrating on women, women of color, working women. And I want to uh, play this documentary called The Radium Girls. Done this before in, on, on the show. Honoring these women who were painting radium on watches and who were not told that it could give them radiation poisoning and how many of them got sick with radiation being exposed to radiation. Now this one is called the Radium Girls. When May Keene died at the age of 107 in March 2014, reports of her death focused not on her extraordinarily long life, but on the fact that she probably should have died nearly nine decades earlier of radiation poisoning. It's believed that Keene was the last of the so-called Radium Girls, a group of several thousand young female factory workers in the early 20th century who for years worked with one of the world's most radioactive substances and suffered the consequences. Nearly a century later, their story is a reminder that it can take us a while to fully grasp the downsides and side effects of new discoveries. And at the turn of the 20th century, radioactive elements were far from being fully understood. Radium was discovered in 1898 by Marie and Pierre Curie. They were interested in the fact that minerals containing the element uranium gave off electromagnetic radiation that could pass through metal. Marie Curie investigated these rays, focusing on the mineral pitchblend, where uranium is often found. She discovered the mineral gave off more radioactivity than could be accounted for by the uranium alone. Together, she and her husband succeeded in isolating both element 84, dubbed polonium, and element 88, radium, in the pitch blend. The spontaneous release of energy from rocks was as exciting as it was perplexing. It was considered to be a new force of nature, but little was known about radium's properties or dangers. It didn't take long for doctors to find that the application of radium salts to a cancerous tumor would often shrink the tumor. If it's good for shrinking tumors, must be good for everything, right? So by the early 1900s, radium therapy gave birth to an entire industry of phony cure-all medicines and elixirs. Everything from radium soda to radium toothpaste soon appeared on shelves. Even radium water was a thing. Luckily for consumers, most of these products contained such low levels of radium that they were pretty much harmless. But then someone discovered how to turn radium into glow-in-the-dark paint. Radium itself doesn't actually glow, but Marie Curie famously described the blue fairy-like color she saw while working with the mineral. The effect is caused by the interaction of radium with other chemicals as it decays. As it decays, radium releases particles that ionize nearby materials creating positively charged ions that pull negatively charged electrons from other nearby atoms. The glow occurs when electrons return to their original state, releasing that extra energy as light. In 1902, an inventor named William Hammer, who would be the first person to suggest using radium as a cancer treatment, used samples of radium salt given to him by the Curies and mixed it with glue and zinc sulfide to create a luminescent paint. Hammer found a variety of uses for this new luminous material, which he called undark, from toys to guns sites, but the most popular was for the dials on watches and clocks so they could be seen in the dark. By the early 1920s, Undark was being used by the U.S. Radium Corporation in New Jersey, where more than 4,000 workers, mostly young women, used it to paint tiny glowing numbers on watch faces. Even though the company's own chemists made sure to handle radium behind lead shields, the radium painters weren't given much in the way of protection. In fact, workers were encouraged to use their lips and tongues to shape the tips of their brushes. Soon the effects of the radium showed up 
up in the health of the workers. Even though very high but very localized exposure to radium can kill cancer cells in some cases, ingesting large amounts of it over time exposes the whole body to its damaging effects. And what makes radium particularly dangerous when it's ingested is that it has chemical properties similar to calcium, so it's easily absorbed into bones, teeth, and other tissues. As a result, the women soon developed tumors, bone marrow damage, and leukemia. Others started losing teeth, suffering from deteriorating jawbones, mouth cancers, sores, and anemia. By the late 1920s, the health concerns about radium were starting to become public. And in 1927, five of the painters sued their employer for damages and medical expenses and won, but by then, dozens of past and present radium painters had died. That May Keen survived is probably due to the fact that she found the paint gritty and didn't like the feel of it in her mouth. To this day, if you run a Geiger counter over the graves of many of the women who died nearly 90 years ago, the needle will jump. Nearly a century after they introduced the world to the dangers of radium firsthand, the radium girls remain radioactive. Thanks for watching this SciShow Dose, brought to you in large part by today's President of Space, Soliloquy. You can check out his YouTube channel. Okay, so that's the uh, the skinny on the radium girls. Um, these were women who worked with radium. As I said, they were t supposed to put the brush in their mouth when they did their work. Um, the officials, of course, handled everything behind uh, lead... <clears throat> in lead boxes to shelter themselves, but the radiation girls were not given that same uh, protection. Want to read something now by Greg Pallas. Greg Pallas is kind of an ace uh, reporter. He, he sort of puts himself out there as an old-style newsman, you know, with his shirt, his tie undone, and he's got a battered hat that he wears. Uh, uh, very effective, very uh, almost a resource, a, a great resource. He's done a lot of work around uh, voter-stealing Votes, taking away people's votes, depressing the vote. He also spent time at the University of Chicago, the aforementioned, where a union campaign just won, which was the headquarters of Milton Friedman and monetary, monetary policy and free market uh, philosophy embodied in a book called Free to Choose, where he kind of ignores a whole lot of what's going on in real life to assemble this kind of very nice system where everything works out for everybody. Anyway, Greg Pallast. This is about the Vegas shooter, and it so happens that Pallas went to school with the guy Steve Paddock, the guy who shot 58 people in Las Vegas. This is what he writes. They shared a lot. They had a common background, common lives in a lot of ways. When we were at Francis Polytechnic High in Sun Valley, Steve Paddock and I were required to take 
electrical shop class. At Poly and at our junior high, we were required to take metal shops so we could work the drill presses at the GM plant. We took grafting, grafting like in blueprint drawing. Paddock, palaced. We sat next to each other at those drafting tables with our triangular rulers and number two pencils so we could get jobs at Lockheed as draftsmen drawing blueprints of fighter jets or a tool and die cutting to make refrigerator handles at GM where they assembled Frigidaire refrigerators and Chevys. But we weren't going to fly the fighter jets. Somewhere at Phillips Andover Academy, a dumbbell with an oil well for a daddy was going to Yale. He would then fly our fighter jets over Texas. We weren't going to go to Yale. We were going to Vietnam. Then, when we came back, if we still had two hands, we went to GM or Lockheed. It's no coincidence that much of our student population at our school was Hispanic. But if you went to Bevy, Beverly Hills High or Hollywood High, you didn't take metal shop. You took advanced placement French. You took advanced placement calculus. We didn't have advanced placement French. We didn't have French anything. We weren't placed and we didn't advance. Steve was a math wizard. He should have gone to UCLA, to Stanford. But our classes didn't qualify him for anything other than L.A. Valley College and Cal State Northridge. Any dumbbell could get in. It was nearly free. That's where Steve was expected to go, and he went with his big math whiz brain. And then Steve went to Lockheed like we were supposed to until Lockheed shut down plants in 1988, Steve left, took the buyout. And after NAFTA, GM closed too. Land of opportunity? Well, tell me, who gets those opportunities? Some of you can, and some of you can't imagine a life where you just weren't given a fair chance. Where the smarter you are, the more painful it gets because they have your face pressed against the window watching them. They got the connections to Stanford. They got the gold mine. We get the shaft. This is where Paddock and Palace were bred. Sun Valley. The anus of Los Angeles. Literally, it's where the sewage plant is. It's in a trench below the Hollywood Hills where the smog settles into a kind of puke yellow soup. Here's where L.A. dumps its urine and the losers they only remember when they need cheap labor and cheap soldiers when the gusanos don't supply enough from Mexico. I'll take you to Sun Valley. It's in my film, The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. In the movie, which is a kind of... this kind of dream scene, the actress Shailene Woodley takes me back to my family's old busted home in the weeds and then down San Fernando Road near Steve's place. Take a look, America. 
along the tracks that once led to the GM plant, you see a bunch of campers that the union men bought for vacations. Now they live in them. No. Steve's brain was too big to end up on the tracks. He lived in empty apartments in crappy buildings he bought, then in a barren tract house outside Reno. <laughs> I laugh when they say he was rich. He wanted to be them, to have their stuff. He got close. It's even reported that Steve was a professional gambler. That was That's another laugh. He was addicted to numbing his big brain by sitting 14 hours a day in the dark in front of video poker machines. He was a loser. Have you ever met a gambler who said they were a professional loser? And it's fair to ask me, why didn't I end up in a hotel room with a bump stock AR-15 and 5,000 rounds of high-velocity bullets? Because I have a job, a career, an obsession to hunt them down. The daddy-pampered pricks who did this to us. The grinning billionaire jackals that make a profit off the slow decomposition of the lives I grew up with. But I'm telling you, I know it's a very fine line and lots of crazy luck that divided my path from Paddock's. Dear reader, the publication that pulled this story at the last moment is plain scared that they'd be accused of approving murder. Paddock slaughtered good people coldly with intense cruelty, destroying lives and hundreds of families forever. But if you think I'm making up some excuse for him, then I give up. But also this. The editor of the Beverly Hills-based publication, a Stanford grad, could not understand that, just like veterans of the Vietnam War who suffer from PTSD every day, so too losers of the class war can be driven mad by a PTSD that lingers, that gnaws away at their whole lives. Langston Hughes wrote, what happens to a dream deferred? Does it fester like a sore? Does it stink like rotten meat, sag like a heavy load? Or does it explode? Steve, you created more horrors than your cornered life could ever justify. But I just have to tell you, Steve, I get it. Okay, that's Greg Palace writing about the realities of class in the United States. He uses the example of a guy that he used to know who gunned down 58 people as a way to touch on of in everyday fact of life here in America. This is the thing that Donald Trump seems to have tapped into that so many leftists don't understand. That regular life, regular everyday life under capitalism is toxic. 
poisoning the earth. It's poisoning our souls. It's killing us. It's causing us to kill one another. Okay, that's Greg Pallast, and uh, we're pulling up to uh, turning off time. Let's see what we got left. I wanted. I want to do some things with Nancy Morejon, who's the uh, Cuban poet laureate. But let's see if we can get a couple more songs out of it. Okay, labor and love coming at you. And uh, I wanted to tell a little story. One of my uh, obsessions is storytelling. I told a story to my young grandson's class last week and made me think of a story. Not the one I told. Not the one I told, but another story called The China Button. Better, t- better said, The Third World Button. Okay, let's call it The Third World Button by Bill Morgan. Okay, consider a situation where these two guys who just don't like each other. And they keep running into one another at working in the same types of companies, in some cases dating the same women, until one of them, Red, is Red and Lefty. Red marries a woman named Maureen. The problem was that Lefty was in love with her, and he thinks Red did it just to spite him because it's a pattern in their lives. And Red is sort of... you know, sanctimonious. He says, well, you know, you had your chance. You had your chance to marry her, but I just moved too fast for you. I've beaten you again. And all these times back in their lives together, Lefty can think of times where Red has bested him in contests, uh, taken his money in situations, stolen his woman. And he feels like that's what happened now. So he thinks to himself, that guy is so sanctimonious. He's so righteous. And it's true. Red is like that. He's always putting people down for not being good enough. He's always uh, telling people they're not honest. He's always looking for their faults. And this becomes uh, an obsession with Lefty to get back at him for this. And this is how he decides to do it. He waits for a time when Red has had his bad luck. Bad luck has turned against him. He uh, lost his house. His stock market investments have gone not and see Lefty investigates all this and one night he calls up he 
can tell Red is getting desperate. He calls him up and he says, Can you come over now? I've got a deal for you. I know you need money. There's a way, an easy way for you to get a lot of money. I know we, we haven't gotten along in the past, but uh, let bygones be bygones. Okay? Come on over. I'm not kidding you. You can make a lot of money in a real short time. Well, okay, at first, Red says no, and he doesn't go. But as things get worse with his investments and his houses and his debts are piling up, he decides to go over to Lefty's house. And he comes in and uh, they shake hands and Lefty welcomes him. Looks like everything's on the up and up. Finally, they get to the point. They finish their drinks, they talk. They talk about old times and uh, Lefty is so conciliatory. His, all his bitterness seems to have left him. He seems to have forgiven Red and even to let Red know that he thinks he was right on several occasions, which is... But in the meantime, then he starts talking about Red's financial problems. And Red just kind of breaks down and he says, I don't know what to do. Uh, I need to get some money quick. And you said there was a way I could get some money quick. So Lefty said, yeah, and here it is. What he does, he puts out on the table a box. And it has a red button on the top. And he says, what's this? Lefty says, what's this? I'm sorry, Red says, what's this? And Lefty says, this is a box. And you can make a whole lot of money with it. Merely by pushing the button. I can? How does that work? Well, this box is wired into a, a uh, website. When you push that button, someone in the third world will die. That's what it is. Someone in the third world that you don't know will die. And you will get paid a check. It'll come in the mail in about a week for a million dollars. What? A million dollars? For what? Merely for pushing that button. And you'll get paid a million dollars. Oh my God, Red thinks, this will solve all my financial problems. But wait a minute. You mean to say this person wouldn't have died if I don't push the button? That's true. Okay, and this is how it happens. We have agents all over the world and our agents are 
waiting and ready, they get a phone call and uh, someone dies. What do you mean they die? How do they die? Oh, there are so many ways. Starvation, thirst, dying of thirst, uh, dying of depression, dying of, of heartbreak, uh, dying of grief, dying of uh, being shot. You mean, you mean to say, Red says, you're going to murder somebody? They're going to murder somebody? No, sometimes it doesn't take the form of murder, but someone will die. Oh, I, I can't do that, Red says. Never mind, he says. Never mind, says Lefty. Just think about it, okay? Just think about it. I can, I can hold the offer for another day or two, he said. Uh, I'm going to think about it. And so he does. He leaves. And Lefty is there, Red is, Lefty is there with the box. And he's saying, this is how I'm going to get back at this prick. I'm going to get back at him. Because now he won't be so sanctimonious. He'll be a murderer. And I'll know it. So later on that evening, Lefty gets a phone call, and sure enough, it's Red, and Red says, okay, I've thought about it. I want to come over. Okay, okay, come on over. And Red comes in, and Lefty sits down with him, and they talk, and he says, well, what do you think? What do you think? You want to do it, Left uh, Red? Red said, yeah, I want to do it. I want to do it. I thought about it. I thought about how wonderful. What power. It's the power of a God. I can take life from someone. Oh, I'm ready. So then he pushes the button. Ah, what power. You see that? You see that, Lefty? The only problem is now you're a murderer. You see that, Red? Now you're a murderer. And Red goes, oh no. No, no. I, I, I don't want anyone knowing that. And he proceeds to kill Lefty. Amen. This is Labor and Love. This is The Bee. And hope you have a good week and good work. Remember, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. Remember, if you don't have a seat at the negotiating table where you work, you're probably on the menu. And finally, never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. This is your weekly Labor Day, Labor and Love Radio, signing off.
Are you a stand-up comedian? Do you want to be in 25 shows in five days at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco? Well, now's your opportunity. Apply now for the Spark Presents third annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival, March 1st through 5th. That's 25 shows in five days featuring 40 comics from out of town, and one of those comedians could be you. Go to our website, www.mutinyradio.fm, and click on the submission form. Apply for the Spark Presents third annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. It's only $10, and you can apply right now through November 30th for 25 shows during five days, all streaming live, all podcast posts, all Mutiny Radio, all the time. The third annual Spark Presents Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival 2018. Apply now. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's Underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere $5 every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because $5, I mean, that's what I used to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere $5 is indubitious. 
But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere. Like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse. Or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? It's a cash cock, honey. Looking for a personal injury lawyer in San Francisco, look no further than Francis J. Shaheda. Mr. Shaheda did an amazing job with my case. First, he informed the courts about my case that had not been scheduled or submitted yet, despite the language on the citation. I was so confused and afraid of the legal system, but he did it all for me. He communicated promptly via email with any of my questions. I was afraid of an enormous fine for a small infraction, as well as a criminal offense on my record, but he spoke to the DA to have my case removed from criminal court and put into the community court system. I am so overwhelmingly happy with the results he generated and would recommend him to anyone with legal issues. This is a personal first-person narrative because Francis J. Shaheda helped me personally, helped Mutiny Radio go to him for personal injury issues. You can email him at www.personalinjuryattorney.com fjs.com again the law office of francis j shaheda in san francisco awesome and underground space for an event? Look no further than mutinyradio.fm. Our 30-seat flexible space can accommodate your acoustic band, birthday party, comedy show, dance party, karaoke super fun, theater event, fundraiser. If you think it, we can do it. You run the door in promotion, we run the sound, space, and podcast. Rentals available Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday from 8 to 10 at Mutiny Radio FM's performance space at 2781 21st Street in the Deep Mission at 21st in Florida. Contact Pam at pamsidai at hotmail.com for more options and booking dates. Incredible socialist prices so you can be creative in a free speech space without breaking the bank. That's Mutiny Radio Rentals every Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday from 8 to 10. Book your event now. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes. And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke 
workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! <laughs> The Night Space brings you high time story time every Wednesday night from 10 to midnight on Mutiny Radio. Listen to San Francisco's finest underground comedians read crazy stories written by me, Arden, on The Night Space. The Night Space featuring high time story time every Wednesday night from 10 to midnight on Mutiny Radio. High Time Story Time Volume 1 now available on Amazon.com for Kindle. Flat Black Plastic is the show you're listening to on mutinyradio.fm. One, two, three, bam. bam. 